even though a lot of the people didn't know Saim, I felt that there really was just this tremendous feeling of identification with my loss and with our collective loss. All of us have changed since October 7th, our outlook, our beliefs, it's affected all of us. People really wanted to be part of it. They wanted to experience it, share in the morning, in the collective morning. So it didn't really matter if they knew me or Chaim or other family members. They had so much emotion with no place for it to go, I think. Hannah Walkholder Katzman, I welcome you to Exit Strategy and... You know, I also thank you deeply for making the time and for your willingness to speak so publicly about what is a profoundly deep and very recent loss. I do want to mention that you work for the Center for Women's Justice in Israel, and you were actually on their podcast, which is called Voices of Women at Wartime. Because of my work through the Hadassah Foundation, I have a connection to the Center for Women's Justice. And so I'm very pleased that we were able to connect. I thank you for being on this podcast, Exit Strategy. Thank you. On October 7th, a day now etched into the collective memory of Israelis and Jews everywhere, you and your family and the world lost your son, Chaim Yeshurun Katzman. He was 32, and you lost him to the terrorist massacre that claimed over 1,200 lives in Israel. As I said to you earlier, in January, I read an essay by you in the Times of Israel, which is posted on our episode show notes. And you described how your mourning was part private, but in so many ways, it's public. And so I immediately wanted to invite you as a podcast guest because of your unique and very personal perspective. Please tell us about Chaim, his character, his passions, his purpose, and of course, his place in your family. Chaim is my second child. Our oldest was born when we still lived in New York, and we made Aliyah in 1990. Mine was born a year later. He was a very attractive child, very gifted, funny, well-liked. In the family, he was challenging. He liked to argue. He tested our limits. He also, in, in school, most of the teachers liked him. He was a good student, but he also stood up for himself and pushed the limits with his teachers. He was kicked out of high school when he was in 11th grade, out of his yeshiva high school, and he finished in another school that gave him a little more independence. He already started studying at the Open University in high school, philosophy. He served in the army in a combat unit. It's called field intelligence. As he finished the army, he asked to continue his studies, so he continued taking courses in Open University, finished a year or two after the army, and the, he received his BA, and then he moved to Khalid. Kibbutz Khalid is a small kibbutz near the border with Gaza. A friend of his had already moved there. He'd been looking to start a community for young people. When he spoke to the government, they said, no, we're not going to start a new community. We're, we have a lot of communities that need strengthening. They encouraged him to check out Khalid. So Khalid is an aging kibbutz that was started in Sinai after Israel turned Sinai to Egypt. He, Khalid, 
relocated to its current location. And Chaim became very much a part of it. He supported himself by working in a garage in a nearby Moshav, in a communal collective, what was the local garage for all of the surrounding communities. He learned how to service cars. And so he supported himself while he had MA from Ben Gurion University in political science. He applied and got a doctorate in the University of Washington in Seattle. So he did leave the kibbutz for two years. It was during COVID. So he was able to come back and he wrote his field work in Israel. And he interviewed people from the national religious community in the surrounding communities about the attitudes of the national religious community over the last 20 years and their political views, religious views, and so on. He wrote a lot about it. He also wrote about the Americanization of the Israeli right. There's a book coming out in Hebrew, which he has a chapter. He's published quite a bit. Posthumously, one book came out a few days, really literally days after he was killed. If you would please share your experience on October 7th and, of course, the day after. So on October 7th, I was in my apartment in Jerusalem. One of my younger sons was visiting with me. We woke up like many people in Israel to sirens throughout the morning. So we went to the, the shelter. So the neighbors were just telling us what happened. I didn't turn on my phone. Sabbath observant. We were hearing all kinds of rumors. She was sure that there were terrorists roaming the streets of Jerusalem with guns and that we needed to close the shelter from inside. And to make a long story short, Jerusalem was not affected directly. I made a conscious decision to keep my phone off. I don't have time in particular, you know, has been in dangerous situations before. We don't expect something to happen. I don't think I could handle live reports. Later in the day, I saw that he sent me a message around seven and he was okay. That was seven in the morning. Yes. The infiltrations happened, I don't know, five, six, and then started pretty early in the morning. And they were, I guess, simultaneous. I really avoided a lot of looking too closely at any timelines. I did check my phone a little bit later, and I saw that, that he had already he'd written to me. After the Sabbath was over, I called Chaim. He didn't answer. And then just as I hung up, his friend called me and asked me if I'd heard from him. And he shared you know, his messages with him. That The last message was about one. And we know that was around when he was killed. His He was hiding in the neighbor's closet in her safe room and the terrorist shot at the closet and he was killed and the neighbor who was deeper in the closet was saved. You've clearly been in touch with the neighbor. Yes. As she came to our house Monday morning while we were waiting to hear news about when we could have the funeral. As I have said before, we were fortunate in that Chaim's body was identified pretty quickly and his body was more or less intact and we were able to hold the funeral Thursday, which, you know, in Jewish tradition, we try to bury as quickly as possible. So it felt like a very long time, but it was relatively quickly for those circumstances. You write in your piece that your mourning was very public. It was part of a national process. It was part of a greater collective. And you write that you realized you would have to quote, I'm quoting you here, to push my personal grief aside until after the Shiva, that you could, again, I quote, that you could fall apart later. If you would, could you talk about that a little bit? Because you talked with me 
earlier about how people show up for those who are in mourning. And especially in this space of it being such a public national sense of mourning, your experience with that, I'd appreciate it if you'd share a few thoughts. Well, you know, the traditions of mourning are intended to help the mourner through different stages. Every situation is different and every mourner is different. The first stage, you're busy, you're supposed to be preparing for the funeral, you're exempt from certain commandments and so on. And um, the second stage is the shiva itself where you're not alone and you're, you know, mourners come to you and you're, you know, there's someone available to serve you food and so on. You're not supposed to do it by yourself. I knew that the shiva would be, that there would be a lot of people. We're a big family and we were seven people sitting shiva, five siblings and parents. I knew that it would be people coming in and out constantly. I'm just curious if you felt that you were able to mourn as one would normally mourn? I really had the opportunity, and I did it all the times I've said Shiva, to talk about Chaim. People were really interested and to share his story, and, and people reminded me of different experiences they had with him. And those were all typical Shiva experiences. So that was all there. There was some really kind of weird experiences at the Shiva. I have actually an outline notes for an article about it. This Haredi man came and said he wanted to give it to our Torah. The stranger came in off, the man came in off the street and he wanted to give it to our Torah. And he sat next to my son, who was also Haredi, and he said, as my son said, tell it to me, tell it to me. You know, he didn't, he knew he didn't want that the whole house didn't want to hear. Anyway, you get the idea. But mostly the Shiva was really a positive experience. Even though a lot of the people didn't know Chaim, I felt that there really was just this tremendous feeling of identification with my loss and with our collective loss. All of us have changed since October 7th, our outlook, our beliefs. It's affected all of us. People really wanted to be part of it. They wanted to experience it, share in the morning in the collective mourning. So it didn't really matter if they knew me or Chaim or other family members. They had so much emotion with no place for it to go, I think. I told you before, I'll say again, that a few people wrote to me in response to the blog post. They were all people who had lost children in one way or another. And one of them said that when his child died, a teenager, people came and said, I don't know what to say. He felt he had to comfort them. And that bothered him. And I think that's also part of it. I didn't really recognize it. At the time, people wanted me to comfort them because they didn't know what to say, and I needed to do the work for them a little bit. So I looked at it a little uh, slightly differently than when I wrote, but in both cases, you know, either way, people genuinely have sympathy, and they, they generally are reaching out, and they want to comfort. At the retreat, a woman was describing how someone that she'd gone out of her way to help and hosted for many years. I was at a retreat recently for parents of fallen soldiers, and she was very angry that someone had not reached out to her. I don't have anyone like that, I have to say. I'm sure there are people who still haven't written to me because every so often I get a message saying, I wanted to write, but I didn't know what to say. So I know there's a few more out there. That was so overwhelming, I really, I couldn't really keep track. I heard from so many people. Did you feel an incredible sense of community different than before October 7th? After I moved to Jerusalem a year ago, I joined a synagogue, a Yedidia, and had a few friends from before. 
who attended there, but I found it to be very welcoming and very accepting. And I was invited frequently and my kids were welcome there. And when I moved, my daughter said, where are you going to go to shul? And I said, I don't know. We'll try. We'll go. <laughs> we'll go to shul. I don't know. We'll, go. we'll try different things. We call that shul shopping here. Shul shopping, right. What would happen after October 7th was really, really incredible because they have committees. And poor and I made a joke about their committees because um, they have a Kesher committee, which their job is to make sure if someone doesn't come for a while, they want to make sure they're okay. Do they have health issues? Is there anything they need? And some people felt it was intrusive, you know, like when someone called them up and said, where have you been? <laughs> you know, wasn't always uh, welcomed. <laughs> Why aren't you showing up? Where are you? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so this Kessler committee, I had forgotten about it, but like on my friend, Emil uh, Kaim lived there, one of the women in the community, Dina, she, who I've known for many years. She called right away and asked about Chaim. And then, you know, when she heard he was missing and, you know, that we hadn't gotten final information about him, she asked if I wanted the cashier committee to be in touch with me. So I said, okay. And the chairs wrote to me and one of them called me and she said, at the time my friend was with me, they asked people whose children were missing to go to the police station. So my friend came to the police station and my children came from Beersheva. My daughter and her husband came to stay with me. So I wasn't by myself. So later that night, she asked me, what can I do for you? you? You know, she offered to come over. So I said, I don't need you to come over because my daughter's here, but I might need you to come in the middle of the night. I said, I need someone that I can call. This always makes me cry. I said, I need someone that I can call if I, you know, in the middle of the night. And she said, you can call me in the middle of the night. So that's what I did. The kibbutz notified us around two in the morning. So she came over. And she was there when the, the police came to notify me. And uh, when I made sister call and in the morning, Dina came. And then, and basically the whole week until we had the funeral on Thursday afternoon, there were shifts. People, there were three, there was morning, noon, and evening. And the women were there from the whole time. And people from the all kinds of things going on behind the scenes which I didn't see everything, but I saw a lot. <laughs> I saw enough. To, I've been on the other side, so I know what's involved. But it was done with such a huge amount of sensitivity and concern and constantly checking. You just know. I mean, I know that they were checking. You know, should we, do we have to ask Hannah this or can we just do it? I was the only one in the community who had a direct loss. So they were really people who just wanted to do something. And we needed a lot of things because we were a lot of people. You know, it was different than a regular shiva because so many people were displaced. And you did, you know, they adopted a, uh, one of the hotels with evacuees from Shlomi, a community in the north that was relocated to Jerusalem for now. It's a lot of need. A lot of need. It's, it's amazing how community plays such a key role in Jewish life. From the Simchas we celebrate to the shivas and the mornings that we go through, community is the anchor for so many of us in these moments. I actually wrote a piece about that also in Hebrew for religious feminist organization, right? Hanukkah. So I, I specifically talked about community and how like my own parents lost their communities and they came to United States and were helped by the different Jewish communities where they lived. It makes an enormous difference. You spoke just now about the different losses in your life. And I know that you shared with me 
when your mother died and your father died, your brother died, and and now your son. Talk, if you will, for a moment about Shiva and the framework of Shiva. We know that it's hopefully going to provide a bit of comfort. I'm sure all of these Shivas were completely different experiences for you. Would you say that the Shiva is the framework that we need, that you needed in this time? Each Shiva was just a completely different experience. The nature of the death, the nature of the relationship, the nature of the people around you. You know, when I said Shiva for my brother, I actually went to the funeral and I stayed for a day. Funeral was in Rockville, where my brother lived. And then I came back to my home in Pedalstifa and I said Shiva by myself. You know, most of the people didn't know him. Again, I think for me, except for my mother's, which was so traumatic and unexpected, if I can say enjoy the Shiva, I enjoyed being able to talk about my loved one. What I liked the best is people asked questions. When my father died, I remember the most just interesting questions, like thoughtful questions about what I was telling that helped me get a little more insight into their lives and what they might have been thinking or doing. I want to go back to the piece that you wrote, and this has to do with comforting the mourner. You wrote, the comforters who had the least connection to you or Chaim appeared the most affected. And you go on to say, and I think they needed to be there the most, that that theme is repeated a bit. Can you talk about that? After high school, I studied in Israel for a year in the program for Orthodox women, a few of the women I'm still federal with. And there was another group of women, and they are on an email list, which I wasn't on at the time. And they apparently were very affected by Kain's death, and they wrote a lot about it. Five of them came, and four of them live here in Israel, and the fifth one lived in the States. Now, it happens I was pretty friendly with these women when we were studying together. One of them I was in touch with for a few years after, and the other is not so much. Whatever, you could see just how much they were affected when they came. And when they stayed for a long time, this group from an organization came. They brought some food. And so these four young women came, and they sat in the shiva for a while. And one of them said, I've been to a lot of the shivas, and yours is different. I said, in what way? She said, the others are like death. They're like dark. Uh, there's a different atmosphere. It's more pleasant. And, and she said, it's because of you. And whatever I felt, I, I have experience in Shiva and I know I was able to do it. I don't know. What can I tell you? I did, um, I held it together and I did have some hard times since then. Amazing that that was the takeaway for many people that your Shiva was different because of you. It was also because of Chaim, because Chaim had such a close connection with so many people. So many of his friends from school came throughout the years and a lot of their parents, and they remembered Chaim. He was a very uh, colorful person. He and had a lot of different circles. He had the community garden with the Bedouin women. He started two community gardens in Rahat in a Bedouin city, and he invited these women to come to his kibbutz, Khalid, to show them the garden in Khalid. He was an academic, so he had many academic colleagues. He was a musician, so he had a lot of connections in the music world. And of course, all of the people at the kibbutz and that old area who knew him. Even in India, he met all kinds of people who kept in touch with him and who wrote to me afterward, Israelis and Indians. And, you know, we hear clergy often talk 
about when someone dies, that energy, that light continues to be. And while we don't ever want to experience it, it's there. And here you are talking about that. I'm curious from your perspectives, where you sit today, what's the best thing someone can do for you, support you in this moment? Well, I'll mention Chaim's neighbor, Sheer, who I hadn't met before. Her, her husband had gone to school with Chaim. They lived on the kibbutz. They were there that day on October 7th. So she helped me with the gravestone. She helped choose the style, and she came with me to help. We, we used a natural stone where his name will be. We went to the craftsman's lot <laughs> out in the field, and where there are hundreds of, of rocks, and he showed us that two or three rocks that are going to be suitable for this particular use. And she helped me with the wording. I mean, uh, many people did it. She had a flyer made with the details of the unveiling, which will be this week. In Israel, it's usually done on th- after 30 days. Outside of Israel, it's usually done after a year. We didn't get to do it by 30 days. Um, and many families didn't. So we're just getting to it now. So the, those kinds of things were helpful. People helped me with the speeches that I gave. All that kind of practical help. Another friend who was my best friend in third grade, and she called me up a couple of weeks ago and said, look, I'm free tomorrow. Are you free? And she just took time out of her day and came to visit with me and spend time with me. So those things are also really appreciated. You just never know. A friend of mine, we met and went on a little nature hike a couple of weeks ago. There's so many memorial tasks and, and sorting out his things and uh, people brought me his things, who edited his work, who edited my things. Other than this past weekend, have you had much contact with other families? Very little at the beginning with a couple other families from Khalid. And I went to and spoke. There was a memorial for everyone from Khalid. And I spoke at each each victim had a family member speak on their behalf. So I did that for time. I have intermediate, and while I appreciated the retreat, I don't know, for me personally, I find my support in other ways. I've also been to some of the protests and so on of the families. There's a tent for families set up. I mentioned that in the piece, in the blog post. So I've been there a little bit. And it shows you how everyone goes through loss and mourning in their own personal way. So before I let you go, I'd like for you to take a moment and share with us what's on the tombstone. And if you would, please read it in your native Hebrew, but then if you would translate it, I'd appreciate it. There's going to be a stone, a vertical stone with his name in metal letters. And then on the flat tombstone itself, it will say, Dr. Chaim Yishurun Katzman and Hannah Vidaniel, Kafbet Tishrei Tafshin Peitalid, so was named Dr. Chaim Shuron Katzman, son of Hannah and Daniel, and Daniel, son of Hannah and Daniel, um, 1991 to 2023, and we have the Hebrew date also. His life was cut down in his home of Kibbutz Cholit on what we call in Hebrew the Shabbat Tashchora, the black. Sabbath, a man of peace. And then we have a quote from a poem by Chaim Nachman Bialik. And the song of his life was stopped in the middle. 
kind of catsman, you know, in a time of being exposed to so much news, to be able to sit in conversation with you is truly a privilege. Your love for your family and, of course, your beautiful son is something to be treasured. And I know that a world, truly a world, surrounds you with love and support. Many thanks to you and may Chaim's memory forever be a blessing. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation. I urge you to visit our show notes and there's an email listed there. So if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic. And I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy.